The central text today comes from Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, good morning. My name is Chaz. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, on August 15th, 2008, we moved here, Catherine and I did, to be part of this movement to plant Grace Blue Ridge. And uh, so I wasn't really planning on doing this. But if you were part of the core group, do you mind just stand up? Because there's a few of you still here. Bobby and Sally, Margie, the Killebrews, Williams, Muratas. We appreciate you all. Thank you so much. And... Uh, Obviously, I think the thing that uh, you're feeling super uh, reflective this morning, I mean, you just, you dream and you plan and you pray and you've got a vision, but uh, I think the thing that's helped me more than anything else in, in 15 years of doing this job is recognizing what I can't do and finding the people who can do it. And I am so thankful because God has always given this church an all-star team. I'm really, we're all just super blessed. So why don't we just pray, Lord, I... Um, this is your story, this is your church, and the unfolding 14 years of our church is part of the 2,000 years story of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, and what we do here on Sunday and throughout the week, how we love one another in small groups, how we care, make meals, pray, contend, speak truth, be curious and kind, all these things where we Essentially, fight for one another. They really matter. And I pray, uh, Lord, as we turn the page to look at your passage this morning, that we would find and experience an, I mean, just a defiant joy and a settled happiness over what you're doing and what you've done in our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. I know you've got balloons in front of you now, so you might already know an answer to this. But I want to ask you a very thoughtful question. I want you to take a moment and pause and think about it. Are you happy? Are you happy? Are the people around you, would they say your demeanor reflects happiness? Now, I also want to say something else. Some of us, we, we hear that and we say, wait, wait a second, am I happy? <laughs> Come on, what kind of question is that? That's shallow happiness. Well, in fact, I think a lot of us as believers, we, we come to the subject of happiness and we think, well, that's kind of not for us, right? Stop me if you've heard this. God cares about your holiness, fill in the last second, not your happiness. God cares about your holiness, but not your happiness. And if happiness is to be defined as selfish pursuits that lead to indulgences at all costs, then of course that warning, and I understand where that warning comes from, but when we say that, do you know what that does? It shuts the door on happiness. For many Christians, I think we believe, and it's, it's tempting to say, well, you know, happiness is off the table, but we get joy at least, right? 
Because joy is deeper. But part of our confusion is, is we don't realize when the Bible uses the word joy and happiness, they're used synonymously. They're a little bit different, but maybe for us to understand something, Mike Mason wrote this. He said, happiness without joy is a masquerade. <laughs> that is the selfish, superficial way. But joy without happiness is a spiritualized lie. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us might think that that's all we're allowed. To understand this, we must understand that God takes happiness and joy serious. Happiness and joy is serious business of God. Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, all men seek happiness. It's without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. What it is then, and this is a little bit wordsmithy, so try to stay with this, this desire and this inability to realize the good we long for proclaim to us, but that there once, once in a man a true happiness, of which there now remain to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain <laughs> tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he doesn't obtain in things present. But they're all inadequate, <laughs> Because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. Happiness and joy is so serious to God that you know that in the garden, God forbade Adam and Eve to partake from the very thing that would rob them of their happiness. Happiness and joy is so serious to God that we're told it was joy that allowed Jesus to endure the cross, it is essential for your well-being to really understand what joy and happiness is. So let me return to that question. Are you happy? Is there a settled happiness of your life? I hope you don't dismiss that because it's a very important question. But if your answer was anything less than yes, join in the club. You're not alone. We really struggle with this. But I think this passage has got a lot for us. So let's just take a look. What defiant joy is? What is a settled happiness? How defiant joy lives? If we have it, what would our lives look like? What could they look like? And then lastly, where do we get it from? How is this even possible? All right, you with me? Okay, that didn't sound great, actually. Uh, I don't think you are now, so I'll just stop. Okay, bye-bye. Hey, you can figure out joy and happiness all on your own now. You miserable people. No, just kidding. All right. All right, let's take a look. Uh, all right, so as we inch closer to the end here in the book of Philippians, Paul's writing his letter, and you know, at the end, uh, he just fires off this list of imperatives that all seem sort of disconnected at the end. He says, you know, rejoice always, be reasonable. Hey, don't be anxious, pray. Hey, when you pray, be thankful. Now, part of me kind of, when you first read this, you start to thinking, I know what Paul's doing. He's doing what a lot of pastors do. Sometimes we think, we forgot to say something really, really, really important. And you know what we do? We wedge it into a two-minute prayer, okay? So anytime you hear a pastor pray two minutes, they're not being spiritual, they forgot something to say, and they just want to get it in for good measure because it's so important. That's what it looks like Paul's doing. It's just all these imperatives and do this and do that. But what Paul's doing, he's inviting you and I to see a blueprint for joy and a settled happiness if it came over our life. The hallmark of this book is the Apostle Paul's writing while incarcerated in a, in a prison. He's in shackles, and it's cold, and it's damp, and it's dark, and there's not a lot of hope. He's literally on death row, but who is he writing to? 
He's writing to people whose lives are falling apart. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're being economically blacklisted. They're being beaten. They, there's a shadow like Middle Earth, you know, hanging over them that at any minute I could lose everything, including even my life. And Paul offers them this. He says, in, fa- in the face of that, rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. And I just want to stop and I want to pause and I want to recognize that this verse right here has the potential to be one of the greatest lifelines of our lives, but I also think it has the potential to be one of the most damaging verses in the Bible. Because when your life is falling apart and someone just slaps all that on you, it can, be, it can provide a lot of unnecessary shame. I, I think I need to say this. Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he didn't just attend a Tony Robbins conference, okay? He's not coming back and like, I know life's hard, but you got to eat your problems for breakfast, man. You know? I don't know. Does Tony, Tony Robbins talk like that? I've never watched him, but, you know. Put a positive thought in place of your negative. Um, when I was in college, going into my junior year, I did a sales job. It's the only job I've ever quit. was an internship, and uh, I was selling encyclopedias in rural Mississippi. Rural, when you say armpit, there you go. That's it. Sorry for all those from Mississippi. But, you know, the, the culture of this, the, the sales team was positivity, positivity, positivity. Uh, it was just insane. All the training meetings. I don't know if you remember the song. I get knocked down, man up again. You know, does anybody remember that song? Uh, well, that was on loop at every sales meeting. Okay. So imagine sitting in a room just like this and it's playing over and over for two hours, okay? And I get out there, and I get out into the field, and you know what? I got knocked down, and I really didn't get back up again. <laughs> Pit bulls. I almost got jumped. I'm not kidding, and I know I lose my man card for that, but I talked my way out of it. I had no other choice, okay? And you know what? An associate, I talked to him, he got shot at. And around this time, I'm thinking, you know, there's this new thing called the internet. I think it's pretty profound. Uh, I think it might actually replace the need for encyclopedias. Is this worth dying for, you know? <laughs> like, should I really be doing all this? And I go, and I'm like, you know, I'll talk to my boss. And he comes, and he drives out, and you know what? I start talking to him, and everything I say, he's got a canned response. He starts laughing it all off. I'm like, hey, you know, this almost happened. It was pretty frightening. ha, 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 ha. And I look down. I'm not making this up, okay? I look down. While he's talking, I happen to glance at the vanity plate on his BMW. says, life is great, eight, 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 right? Life is great. Paul, that's when I decided to quit, by the way, okay? <laughs> that's delusion. I hope you're following. That's delusional. Paul's not offering suffering people Hey, you know, just slap a happy face on it. This is the same man who's saying this early in the letter. He's been in tears. Earlier in the letter, he's been anxious. Earlier in the letter, he was angry about injustices. There's this beautiful moment that happens in the Lord of the Rings when everything's dark. And the shadow has just been there for so long. And it just, hope is gone. Joy has been lost. But out of the middle of the night, this beautiful thing happens. Sam is up and, quote, there, peeping among the cloud, rack above a dark tor, high up in the mountains. Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. And
and the beauty of it smote his heart. God, I love that line. The beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked up out of the forsaken land, hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. What happened to Sam? Joy. A settled happiness broke through the clouds, didn't it? And it fell on him right there in the pain, in the sorrow, in the struggle, in the moment when you want to give up. Settled happiness landed over him through the thick fog. And it was real and it broke through. Wow. We have to have joy. Like our lungs need oxygen. You can't live without it. You were meant for this. God has designed you for it as part of who he is, as part of our original design. And so when Paul lists all these imperatives, they're connected because what is he ultimately trying to do? He's trying to smite their heart with joy in the middle of all the pain. He's inviting them to joy to be present in the middle of the pain. Now, where would Paul get such a concept? Well, consider for a moment what Jesus Christ said. He said to you, you know, uh, to his disciples, getting ready to leave the earth, he says, you know, a dark cloud is coming. It's going to be hard. Not many of you are even going to survive. You won't even make it through with your life. But truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to weep and you're going to lament and the world's going to rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I will never forget the night my son was born. Going in my, we're in our room, and in the room here, in the room here, at the maternity ward at Park Ridge, which was called at the time, I hear shrieks, wailing, screaming. It's going to be okay, Catherine, right? <laughs> screaming. Oh my gosh. Wow. But you know what in the morning? Silence. Silence. Because what happened in the morning? Joy came and paid a visit in their arms, didn't it? No woman gives birth to a child and says, yeah, piece of cake, that was easy, you know, I just yawned and it came right out, you know, that didn't hurt, no, every single one of you who have given birth have said, yeah, that hurts, but something happened when that child was put in my, my, my arms, joy outpaced the pain, didn't it? That's what Paul's getting at. Paul is showing us what it means to have a joy that doesn't ignore the pain. See, Jesus Christ, you need to know this, whether you believe in Jesus or not, the most emotionally healthy person who has ever walked the planet is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because what do you see with Jesus? You see him weeping. Jesus lamented. He prayed in anguish. He was angry. And at the end of his life, his life seems like it's falling apart. He's wailing. He's screaming. He's shouting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's lost everything except joy, his joy. What is that joy? You will have to stay tuned to point number three. What is it settled on? You'll have to 
Stay tuned to point three. But number two, right now, what I want to focus on is what would it look like if you had it? And we begin to take hold of this. What would our lives look like? Well, first of all, let's talk. How does a defiant joy, settled happiness live? Not apparently how we are right now. So Jean Twenge, I've quoted her. She wrote a great book called Generations recently, just uh, iGen. She's a social psychologist, uh, teaches at San Diego State, a total data nerd, which I love because data speaks, right? And so I want you to understand something. She wrote an article in 2019. uh, I think the title was The Sad State of Happiness, the United States and the Role of Digital Media. Now, again, 2019, do the math. This is before what? The pandemic, right? What's going on? I mean, there's ebbs and flows, but that, I remember doing linear lines trying to connect things back way in the day in school. We're growing less and less happy as a culture. This is our culture, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the recreation and independence. We're our culture. It's everywhere. Our economy's built on you trying to buy something to be happy. It's everywhere. We, go do whatever you need to do to do you. You be happy. Don't let anybody stand in the way of that. This is what we're preaching all the time. It's everywhere. And we're anxious, and we are not happy. What has happened to us? Let me return again to our original question, which set us out on this journey this morning. Am I happy? Would the people around me say that? Are you? Are you? Paul's contrasting, and what he's doing is he's showing us there's two ways that this should demonstrate his faith. There's one way, and one of the ways we are taught how to be happy is entirely self-focused. Now, really dial in on this. Where I go out into the world and I look for something, people, places, things, and if I get what I want, I will have my joy. This was me at 11.30 last night after another Florida loss believing that there is no hope in the world anymore, right? Because I am looking to it, and it is not delivered for 15 years, okay? Pray for my bad heart that still idols football. I hate it, but it's true. We look to something to find our happiness, to our joy, or there's the other way, that a joy comes into your heart, and it's a gift, And it's been given to you. And it's somebody else's joy as a gift. And all of a sudden, this is a joy that reshapes your entire life. And you are living out of this joy. And now you're going out into the world and you're not looking to things. You're not looking for you to make me happy. Or this experience to fulfill me. Or this one thing I think I have to have in order to be joyful and to be happy. See, stay with this, okay? All of a sudden he mentions, hey, don't be anxious. Verse 6. Now, why do you think that's there? I'll tell you why it's there. Because Paul is not dismissing the fact that God gave us amygdalas, you know, fight-flight responses. We're going to have the moments justly so, otherwise we would do crazy things, right? But the word he uses here in the Greek, it literally means to seek to promote one's interest. You get it? It's an anxiety that's entirely self-focused. Why? Because this is, a, this is an anxiety saying, I, I've got this thing and I know it'll give me joy if I have it, but I'm worried I'm not going to get it. And I'm really worried I might lose this thing. And all of a sudden, if I don't, what will I be? I want you to notice something. Jesus Christ, there are a lot of things in the Gospels we read and say, wow, he should have been anxious. There's a moment Jesus Christ is on a boat and the waves are everywhere. And disciples are wondering if he even cares about them. And what is Jesus doing? 
He's sleeping on a mat. Jesus is around Pontius Pilate, a big political figure, historical figure. He's around religious leaders, important people, and Jesus is not anxious about what they think about him. Read the Gospels. You never see Jesus anxious about what he's going to eat, where he, what he will drink, where he will sleep. But there is one moment in the Gospels, and you look at Jesus and you say, wow, he's falling apart, isn't he? And where is that? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ is a wreck. He's praying and blood's coming out of his pores. He's begging the disciples, will you just stay awake? Angels, in one of the Gospels we're told, I don't which one, have to come to attend to him. He's in anguish. And at the end of everything, on the cross, he's crying and he's screaming. Why? Because one of the things Jesus is anxious about is the source of his joy. And what would that be? His father's presence. Jesus was indifferent to his physical death. But you know what he was torn up about? The thing that is meant to give us our joy. The smile, the affection, the love, the presence of the father and he knew that something was going to happen cosmically that is hard to articulate theologically on the cross that he would not have that. And Jesus Christ is falling apart. But see, my, you know what my life looks like? I look like Gethsemane, but it's, you know what it is? It's not about this oftentimes. It's, it's about I'm worried. I stay up. I can't sleep. You know why? Because I'm worried. Why, why did that person say that? I'm worried about the future. Will I have enough money? I, you know, I worry about my health. What's going to happen to my child? Will my family stay intact? Will my friends stay healthy? Because so often, even when I worry about others, it's still really about me oftentimes. I'm, I need you to be okay for me to be okay. See, Paul is getting at the core. We were mad for joy and happiness. Happiness is not our problem, friends. It's where where we look for it, and what. He mentions here, let your reasonableness be known, okay? Real quick. So literally, the Greek means kindness, gentleness. Now, why is he mentioning that? Because you know what happens? If you have a joy that can never be taken away from you, by the way, Jesus is the only one that could ever have that taken away from him if you trust in Jesus. You will never lose what he lost. Then you know what you and I could actually do? And I believe this wholeheartedly. We can go out into the world with house money. Because if I am living and drinking from this joy and this settled happiness that is found in Christ, you know what I can do? I can go out into the world and I say, I don't have to take from you in order to have joy. I don't need you to be a certain way for me to have joy. I don't need all the stars to align in order to actually have joy. And I can give to others. See, I want you to ask yourself, when have you been the most unreasonable in your life, the most miserable person version of yourself to be around? Ask your spouse. You might get an answer. Is when you have set your hope on something and it is uncertain and it is not delivering for you and you cannot be reasoned with. That's what happens. Some of you here have had a taste of what this all actually looks like. And you have tasted it and every single person's in here, worst nightmare. The loss of a spouse, the child, painful divorce, the child who turns away from you relationally, loss of a career, loss of money, friends, 
and you wept and it hurt and you still cry and it hurts but you knew something happened to you didn't it a joy was there and it wasn't taken from you it allowed you to do what to really weep to really give yourself and you know what if we really believe this it's not just the pain it's this we can celebrate when there are good things because you know they're not ultimate things but you can enter into the pain and you can enter into the joy if you have the deeper joy and the deeper settled happiness why does he mention pray with thanksgiving why well yeah it's good to be thankful when you pray okay that's good i get that but you know what he's really getting at he's saying because you're 100 percent dependent every time you pray you're reminded I'm coming back to the source of my happiness, the source of my joy, and I am dependent on this for life, breath, and everything. This past weekend, I was at a wonderful retreat at 10,000 feet uh, in Colorado, and I'm not a retreat guy. I like being in my own bed, okay? But I was there, and as I'm driving late uh, the other night, Sunday of last week, from Denver way up, three hours up to this place, in the dark, halfway up there, I'm realizing I never got an itinerary. What happened? Did I miss that? And I get there and I realize there is no itinerary. Someone else is controlling your whole weekend. Every bit. You'll not know what's going on next. And I want you to know, if I hadn't known that, I would not have gone. Okay? Because I like to know what's coming next, baby. I want to be prepared. I am a control freak. Okay? But it was the best. I'm not a retreat guy. It was the best ever, ever. Hands down. And I loved every second of not being in control. And I was actually dreading coming back to these phones and all that. You know why? How did I do it? It took just a minute to realize I can trust the character of the people who are in control of this. And I felt that they had joy over me and who I am and, and what they see in me. And it filled me with an incredible gratitude and peace Paul says there is a peace that surpasses all understanding. He's speaking of the fact that in the Roman world, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, externally guarded by soldiers, the garrisons, it all has to be manufactured. We have to keep it. We have to have force to have peace. Paul's saying there's a Christian peace that comes through Jesus that is entirely internal. So where do we get this? Let's look at our last point, and we will close from here. I said it earlier, happiness and joy is serious business to God. Because here's Jesus. And I mentioned just a brief minute ago, in Gethsemane, what did Jesus Christ look like? In the Garden of Gethsemane? Or in the cross? Agony. Anxiety. Falling apart. Shouting louder than the mothers on the maternity ward. Because his father's presence was the source of his joy. How did Jesus then endure this? This is so important for us to really understand. And I got it from Tim Keller years ago, so you really know it's true then, right? <laughs> that Jesus has another joy. Jesus lost everybody's running away from him. He's losing everything, including the presence of his father. But we're, look what he says here. He's going through hell, literally and more. But for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Wait a second. You just said he lost his father's present. Oh, I know what joy you're talking about. 
It's the people I'm looking at. Do you, do you understand that's how joy works? You have to have it to endure. But can you and I even begin to fathom that Jesus Christ went through all of that because there was a joy that makes sense of his perfect metaphor about mothers? Because you know what Jesus went through? Something far worth to give new life. And Jesus Christ went through all of that because that joy was holding you and I in his arms, making new sons and daughters, new life, new birth. You and I are the joy of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to keep saying it because I know you don't believe that. Have you ever had the experience of being in front of someone who just enjoyed you? It's one of the best feelings in the world. But Jesus Christ, he did all that not after he made you a son and daughter, but before. That means, it means everything. The anger, the addictions, the struggles with lust, lying, deceit, self-centeredness. And Jesus Christ is looking at you and saying, what a joy to allow me to know by grabbing you through the cross what I will have through this journey and what I will get. And it's not just that. This isn't just internal emotional peace. It's also talking about relational peace. There's a relational peace that happens. That what Jesus Christ experienced on the cross that he didn't have his father's presence, the promises is because of what he did do, we will never have to fear that. Because if you're a Christian, you have been made right with the Father, and he will never, I mean it, never turn his face away from you. It should be noted as well, as we wrap up, just how communal this piece is, your hearts and your minds. I could have stopped right there, but I think this is really important. Paul was in jail, but he was never alone. And I'm not just talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about a guy's name, Epaphroditus. Okay, still can't say the guy's name. Epaphroditus, Timothy. While God can provide peace and apart from community, it is not his normative means of providence. He might be, yes, can you have all of this with you, yourself, and Jesus and watch online and don't come here? Yeah, kind of, I guess. But that's just not how normatively he works. He works at these tables. We are communal beings creating the image of a communal father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I believe we would not have this great letter to the book of Philippians without people. It was read to people. They processed this like you and I are at tables right now. We must have others helping us see this truth that Jesus Christ takes joy in us. And you need the people at the table next to you to remind you of that every day because you got an enemy telling you otherwise every day. What is the chief end of man, folks? It's to enjoy God and worship him forever. Lord, I um, can only just pray and ask that your spirit would uh, take this and apply it. I think we just struggle to believe. <laughs> I know I certainly do. Um, but I do thank you that as we are celebrating 14 years, we're celebrating 14 years of your spirit being here with people and lives being changed in small groups, friendships being forged. People have let others just weep on their shoulders, and others have had just great moments to celebrate. 
the full gamut, the full range. So we do pray, Lord, we ask, increase our joy. Circumcise our hearts to find the joy of the gospel, our great settled happiness and defiant joy. It's in your name we pray, amen.